Heavenly Father, <coughs> as we look at this doctrine of, of uh, glorification, we pray that it would strengthen us, encourage us, build up our faith, cause us to be filled with hope and wonder and adoration for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. So, we've been doing a uh, Sunday school series on salvation, right? How is it that God saves us? And we've said that there, uh, in one sense, God has already saved us. We have been saved, right? That's, we've been called, we've been regenerated, uh, we responded with faith, and then we received justification, right? Justification is the verdict that we are righteous, that is already done, right? Um, so we have been saved. We, we looked at last week, we are now, even now, being saved, right? Um, that's sanctification. We're growing um, into the image of Christ, conformed into uh, holiness and godliness and obedience. And then today we're going to look at the future orientation of salvation, that we will be saved, right? Um, we're still awaiting our salvation in a very deep and profound sense, right? And until glorification happens, we are not, we have not yet fully been saved, okay? So, Glorification, therefore, is the end goal of salvation. Let's read Romans 8. Can I have John read it for us? Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yeah, so it touches on all the elements of the Ordo Salutis that we've been talking about. And that uh, if sanctification is a journey, this very arduous but beautiful winding path the destination is glory, right? Glorification. Um, and that it shows us that we're not just saved from our sins, right? But we're saved onto glory. So what is glory? This is a very um, important word to define because we're going to look at glory the, the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the class, the rest of the day. Glory is a major, major concept in the Bible. Um and in Hebrew, it's the word kavod. Does anyone remember? I mentioned it in a sermon. Yes, Dorothy, what does kavod mean? I don't remember exactly, but I remember the company. Okay. So it's, it was like the fat that was supposed to be given to God, mm -hmm. but then the bad prophet like ate all that fat instead, and he became like fat. Eli, yeah. So he became fat or heavy. Oh, yeah, heavy. That's right, so kavod is heaviness. Um... The idea is that uh, glory is what is permanent, immovable, um, heavy. And everything else around it is <coughs> ephemeral, light, transitory, passing. Right. So imagine like um, this big wind blows through and everything blows away except that which is heavy. Right. So that's kavod. In Greek, it's the word doxa, glory. Um, it means literally light or brightness um, or magnificence. And um, and so it's kind of an absolute. So both the Greek and the Hebrew are using metaphors to describe uh, something that is very hard to define. It's a very abstract <laughs> word, glory. And so I'm going to define it here as honor. Um, what did I say? A claim or a, a 
achievement, acclaim, and what's the? A splendor. There we go. I was looking for splendor. Um, and in the ancient world, it had a particular doxa, glory, had a very specific context in which it was primarily understood or, or it had its highest meaning, which is that um, in the ancient world, they, they thought of it in particular, uh, in, in, um, in particular, specifically in terms of martial glory or military glory. And there was a specific, uh, in, there was a specific event in which everybody understood in which if you lived in the ancient world, see, we live in you know, the United States, so it's very hard for us to appreciate and understand the mindset or the context of the ancient world. But in the ancient world, you often, often had the case where there would be an invading army coming towards you. So you're living in a city, and there's this massive invading army coming towards you. And this is a very serious and terrible prospect. Because if you're conquered... What's going to happen? Terrible things. Um, they're going to possibly, right, or most likely kill you if you're a man, right? Kill all the uh, fighting men or may maybe enslave you. They will absolutely enslave your wife, your children. They're going to ravage your wife. Um, they're going to possibly, you know, uh, uh, I mean, they're going to confiscate all of your wealth. They may burn down the city. It's a terrible thing. And so what would happen in the ancient world? This invading army is coming towards you. Your king would rally the fighting men, the soldiers of the city, and he would go out, and he would meet the enemy. And he would, if it is the case, he would defeat the enemy. On his return, he, the, the, the concept or the, the word that he would receive is glory. Right, um, and so uh, let me add to glory the definition of glory, victory. This is very, very important. And when the king comes into the city, so let, let me graphically draw it for you because we're going to return to this concept again and again. So suppose you're the city. Oh dear. <laughs> I wrote this. How did I write it in the marker? Is this lies? All right. So let's say you're in the city, right? And the king is coming back in victory. Um, and let me, let me, and so let me, let me try to draw a horse. It's a <laughs> okay. And and here's the king. Okay. And he has a crown. Okay, so let me, so you know he's the king. Okay. And what the king would do is when he's returning with all of his soldiers, right? So these are his soldiers. He would often have, or uh, uh, he would try to have um, captive in chains. The enemy, the enemy king, right? So this is the king, and this this is the enemy. Okay, this is a very important concept. So I'm I'm, I'm belaboring the point, and so 
what happens is the king would come back to his city with his victorious conquering army. It looks like they were decimated, so I'll give them more soldiers. And then um, he would bring he would bring back two objects that would that would be to the redound of his glory. He would bring back booty, right? So there would be wagon trains full of loot that he grabbed from the opposing army. And then when he returns to the city, he would distribute that loot, right? So that's an enormous cause of celebration. And he would have in chains, in humiliation, in utter defeat, the enemy king. And he would bring the enemy king back, and then they would publicly execute the enemy king. And so you have to understand this... Um, this you have to understand the, the mindset and the feeling of the city, the, the residents of the city, because you're waiting in tense anticipation of the battle results. If the battle results go against you, you will die. Right? Your whole family will be destroyed. But if if there's victory, not only are you saved, you get you become wealthy, right? And you you have this victorious king who br- brings back his vanquished enemy and all the people would come out and line up the, the gateway and then usher their king into the city. Okay? So, this is, uh, uh, this is sort of the dominant metaphor in the ancient world. And when Paul in the New Testament talks about glory, this is sort of in the background. There are explicit references to this. We'll get to that later. But in terms of our, uh, in terms of our salvation... Who is the king in this scenario? Who is our king, victorious king? Jesus. <coughs> Who is the vanquished enemy? Sarah. <laughs> Satan. Satan, good. Let me let me go even further. Satan, um, sin, evil. Satan being evil and sin personified, right? Rebellion. Alright, so. This is called the triumphal entry. Very, very important concept. Let me write this down. So that when the, when the New Testament writers are talking about glory, our glory to come, everybody in the ancient world immediately was thinking in terms of glory. They're always thinking of this. Because that's the dominant metaphor. That's the dominant concept. And it was so powerful, it was so um, visceral, that experience of being saved from this oncoming onslaught enemy, king, enemy and then having your king come back in glory, it was super powerful. That's what they were thinking. And that's, in fact, what Paul and the New Testament writers are evoking. We'll get to it. We'll continue to get into it. Now, the New Testament tells us something really quite profound, which is that not only will King Jesus get all the glory for defeating Satan, but in a very profound way, we will enter and participate in that glory. So let's read First Peter 5. Uh, Rachel, can I have you read for you? I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you in a couple places. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Yeah, so, let, so we'll stop right there. The word partaker there means, in the Greek, is the word koinonia, does anyone know what koinonia means in Greek? Fellowship. Yes. So it means fellowship. It means to share in. We're going to join in. So this is very, very, um, to some degree, that's already true in the ancient world. Right? <coughs> the, the glory of the 
king. Everyone enjoys it. It's this big parade. It's this big party. But the Bible is saying something even deeper and pro- more profound than that, which is that we're going to join in. We're going to share in the glory. Keep reading. Uh, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Yes, the unfading cl- crown of glory. Um, in the triumphal entry, in Greek and Roman culture, uh, the victor would receive a crown. Does anyone know what that crown is? If you know a little bit about ancient world. <laughs> That's right. It's a laurel crown. Uh, laurel, I think it's laurel or a kind of tree? It's some sort of plant. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's different I, depending on the event. They, they, want, they got different. Yes, I'm, I'm going to keep it very okay. basic, okay? <laughs> so uh, I think it had to do with some sort of myth, right, of, of, of Zeus. Uh, but in any case, the, the victor would receive a crown, a laurel crown, right? So it's basically a, a branch that was bent and made into this crown shape, right? The laurel crown, being organic, would eventually, what would happen to it? It would die, right? It would crumble, it would, it would disintegrate. So, what does Peter say? He says, when our chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's saying, listen, he's saying that it's not just the king who receives the crown. We will all receive that crown, and it will be unfading, it will be eternal, it will never end, it will never fade. Uh, Paul says the same thing, 2 Corinthians 4. Jeff, can I have, it read, can I have you read it? What is this like? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Can I have Jeff on the... L- You're right. For a slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yes. So Paul here says something. He says this slight momentary affliction. Um, he's talking about this life, and he's not making light of it. He's not saying, oh, the troubles of this life, the sufferings of this life, oh, this little thing, this little insect bite. Um, he, if you read his letters, he constantly talks about his travails. He constantly talks about the intensity of his difficulties and sufferings. Um, but what he's saying is that it's slight and it's momentary in light of what? This eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And notice the logic of it there. He says it's preparing for us. Right? So here I want to I wanna write out this logic because it's really quite profound. The Bible says that this oh dear. to glory. Okay? And it's saying that not only is it going to, not only is it a a temporal sequence, present suffering and then glory, it's saying that somehow the present sufferings of this age is preparing for us or leading to or contributing to the glory, right? Let me write this down. This is very profound because what it's saying is that all of our sorrows, all of our griefs is contributing to the glory such that the glory would not be the glory without this. 
So if you think about the city, right, the, the tense waiting, the, the anxiety, the, the fearfulness, the wild rumors going around, did we lose the battle or not? All of that is somehow contributing to this great victory when our king returns. We'll talk about what that means, uh, in what sense, and, what, and, and uh, how does that happen. So, so that's the first thing, right? The salvation that we're awaiting, the, the future event that we're awaiting, is this victorious return, this, um, this victory of our king, of King Jesus, which we will participate in. Point number two, this glory will be revealed at the final resurrection. So the critical question, which I'm going to spend the rest of the lesson on, is when. When is this glory going to happen? Right? Because we're in the present suffering right now. When is glory going to happen? And I'm going to break it up into two parts. Uh, The first part will be relatively not controversial, instructive and helpful. Right, but not controversial. Uh, no Orthodox Christian has ever denied what I'm about to say on that issue. Then the second issue will be highly controversial uh, because I have some sort of strange affection towards controversy. So I'm going to go towards it um, like a bee to honey, um, and then we'll, we'll it'll be fun. Maybe you'll be mad at me, but it'll be fun. All right. So the critical passage. Um, is Romans chapter 8. Let's read Romans 8. I'm going to interrupt whoever reads it frequently. Dorothy, can I have you read it? <coughs> Romans 8, 18-25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes. Does that verse sound familiar to you, Dorothy? <laughs> yes. Does this sound familiar to you in terms of something that we just read? Yes. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, <laughs> right? <laughs> always, always when you cheat by looking at your fellow <laughs> classmate, make sure that person knows what they're doing. <laughs> Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Romans 8, 18, virtually identical. Do you notice, right? That same pattern, right? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All right. So he's talking about this glory that's coming after the present suffering. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Yes. So here it talks about this glory connected to being revealed as sons of God. Um, We can talk about this at great length. This is a massive theme in Paul. But let me just say it very briefly. Almost every time you see sonship, children, um, in the Bible, you always have to think of it in terms of inheritance. Uh, This is something that we, in the modern world, don't really appreciate or think about too much. But um, there were sort of two stages to being a son in the ancient world. You were a son by birth, by genetics, I suppose, And then you weren't fully a son yet until you came into your inheritance. Basically, when your father died, you would get all of his property, all of his connections, all of his alliances. It's sort of like the godfather, right? When when the dawn dies, right, Um, Vito Corleone, Michael Corleone inherits his father's alliances and connections, and if he becomes this powerful mafia boss, the, mo- the, the, the example that everyone would have known in the ancient world is the story of Octavian. Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar did not have a son, 
So he adopted his nephew, Octavian. Octavian was named Gaius Octavian, and he, and he got a new name. His new name was Julius Caesar Octavian. He got his adopted father's name, and when Julius Caesar was assassinated, Octavian, being this really young man, I forget, like in his 20s, he was a nobody with no martial ability, no history. He had his father's name. Suddenly, he got all of his father's connections. He was able to fight the greatest general at the time, Mark Anthony, defeat him, and he became the emperor of Rome. So that story is on everyone's mind. That's what's always being talked about, right? So somehow, we're sons now, but our true, our full sonship is going to come into realization at this glory that's awaiting us. Uh, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation... Well, so let's stop right there, sorry. Um, so it was, the creation was subject to futility. What does futility mean? Huh? I heard, I heard two people. Be brave. Useless. Useless. Yeah, purposeless. Right? I, did I hear vain? Right? Yeah. So, so, futility means that it's describing this life. It's incredibly frustrating. Have you ever been, have you ever had this experience where you put in so much effort, so much time, so much care, and it all turns to nothing? It all becomes nothing, right? Because of some structural <coughs> ridiculousness, because your boss decides to override you, because your health fails you, life is marked by futility, right? That's the present suffering. Um, but Paul says that we have a hope that's coming. The, the word hope in the English uh, language is a really weak word compared to the word uh, in the Bible um, in, the, in, the, in the English, we use it as a kind of wish. I hope it rains tomorrow. I'm not sure. Um, but hope is in the Bible is something that is absolutely for certain. But you just have not yet come into it. So it's sort of like your inheritance. You're coming into your inheritance. You just don't have it yet. But it works backwards. Because you have this inheritance coming to you, you walk a little bit taller. You feel good about yourself. Because you know it's coming, right? Um, so let's keep reading. So, uh, but because of him who subjected it in hope, keep going, verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so that 21 is what I really want to talk about. We're going to camp out here for a while. So uh, it says, so, so what is it that this glory is what, what is it that glory is going to do to us? What is it that this glory is going to promise us and give us? It has to do with decay. So, what does the word decay mean? Breakdown. Breakdown, decomposition, right? Falling apart, right? And what does that therefore suggest? I guess, like, what is the prerequisite for decomposition to occur? Huh? Life. Yes, something organic decomposes, but if it's still alive, it will not decompose. Although I suppose mold can grow on live things, right? But uh, usually, what? Death. Death. So when Paul talks about decay, it's a reference to death, right? There's a very famous passage, of course, foundational passage, passage Genesis chapter 2, where um, God says to Adam and Eve, 
You may eat of every tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? Now, that death is both spiritual and physical. Um, it's spiritual in the sense that we are alienated from God. Right? We experience spiritual disintegration, spiritual decomposition, because we're away from our Father, away from our Creator, away from um, our purpose in life. But very, very important, related to it, correlated to it, and appropriately connected to it, is physical death. Right? Um, and so what Paul is saying is that all of us are subject to bondage or enslavement to decay. I have really come to appreciate the resonance of this. I don't know if you all know my condition or my situation, but about five years ago, I injured myself pretty badly. I injured my my rear end um, when I was uh, caring for Judah. The only way that I could get him to stop crying is I would have to hold him and bounce him on a on one of those uh, exercise balls, right? And uh, it hurt a lot after several hours of several weeks doing it, but the pain of his tears was more severe than the pain of my rear end. So I kept going, which I learned now, if your body hurts, you should stop, right? But I permanently scarred and damaged my, my body such that it's hard for me to sit, right? It's a chronic, permanent condition. Um, I'm 39, And uh, I realized that I have long ago passed peak, right? (laughs) Every year is a year that I'm in worse shape than the year before, right? Every year now is my best year going forward, right? And all I'm doing now is I'm exercising not to be, you know, uh, really fit and, you know, good-looking, I'm exercising now to arrest the decay, (laughs) to slow it down, right? Um, So this is going to be hard for the 20-somethings in this class to believe, but all of you are in bondage to decay. Your body has, your body is like a clock with only so many ticks left in it. And you are moving inexorably to death and then decomposition and decay. This is a terrible thing. Death is not natural. Death is not the circle of part of the circle of life. Death is a terrible interruption to meaning and purpose in this life. That's the biblical view. And so Paul says we're in bondage to it, but the glory that we look forward to, therefore, is freedom. <coughs> freedom as children, which is, again, a reference to... I don't know why I underline children. But freedom from children meaning freedom from this decay, right? What does that mean? Hold that thought. We'll keep going. Verse 22, Dorothy. Uh, for we know that the whole creation has been joined together in the pains of childbirth until now. Yeah. So Paul gives us another metaphor. By the way, whenever you read Paul, he's always layering on all these metaphors. Um, and so you really have to pause and think through. And he, he mixes metaphors. But he says pains of childbirth. which is a fantastic metaphor for present suffering, the sufferings of this age, because I have witnessed two births of class, right? Uh, and when my wife was giving, going through labor pains, 
she went through agony. I mean, she, she, it was a natural birth, right? So no, uh, no assistance. Um, but it was, it was, it was agony. She, she was cursing. She, it, it was like the Exorcist movie, right? <laughs> it, was, it was a frightening and terrible and horrible experience in the sense of, of, the, of the severity of the pain. But what happens after the labor pains? What's at the end of it? Theon, what happens after labor pains? <laughs> a baby. You have joy. Right? <laughs> right? I will never forget Christina received the baby. She was still in a lot of pain. Right? But she wasn't thinking about the pain so much. She was thinking about the baby. And she was crying. I was crying. And so, there's a baby. So, and I'm going to venture on the limb because I'm not 100% sure if I understand what I'm talking about here. But the labor pains produce or contribute to the baby, right? The baby cannot be born without the labor pains. Dorothy, is that true? <laughs> all right, forget about C-section, all right? They didn't have it. Well, they did, but that was extremely rare. Um, all right, uh, so verse 23. Let's keep going on. That's it. So what is this glory that we're awaiting? What is it? Paul describes it. Redemption of our bodies. What is this talking about? What is this saying? Why not redemption of our souls? Why does it say redemption of our bodies? Paul is talking about the curse of decay, of death. And so if he said redemption of our souls, what does that mean? It means that our body falls apart and decomposes, but hey, our soul is saved. No. He says that the curse is reversed. Our bodies will be rehabilitated, restored, renewed. And so what is that called? That is called resurrection. Resurrection, right? So that's the glory that we're looking forward to, which is resurrection, freedom from decay, right? Not just our body, not just our souls, but our bodies. And notice that Paul also says in verse 22, the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. So it's not just our physical bodies that will be renewed and restored. It's the whole earth. All of creation, physical creation, plants and trees and rivers, all creation will be involved. So I always have to give this illustration. It's the great classic illustration, The Lord of the Rings, right? If you've seen the movies, if you read the books, you know that in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, what happens? They're in the mines of Moria, and Gandalf fights the Balrog, right, on that bridge. And then what happens to Gandalf? <laughs> He falls, he dies, right? And the fellowship, if, you, if you've seen the movie, it's very true to the book. They're coming out of the caves of Moria, 
and they're devastated. They're crying because their dear, dear friend Gandalf, their trusted advisor, their wise counselor has died. But then what happens? In book three, after Samwise and Frodo destroy the, the one ring of power, they're rescued by the great giant eagles, and then they're recuperating. And then what happens? Sam's wake, Sam wakes up, right? Um, and who does he see? He sees Gandalf. And it's no longer Gandalf the Grey. Who is he now? Gandalf the White. He's a greater, more magnificent wizard, not just restored, but even greater. And he says this great line, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? So Tolkien here has really captured the spirit of the Bible, which is that the curse and the sadness of the fall is going to be completely reversed and undone. All the sadness is going to come untrue. And that this glory is not just going to be a consolation prize. So, for example... Let me, let me give you this, let me give you this uh, example, illustration. Suppose that a thief comes into your house, and the thief is startled by your spouse. And so he has a gun, and so he kills your spouse. And the thief is arrested, and then the thief is brought to justice. The thief gets life in prison, or something like that. And the thief's family is very well off. So you sue the family... And you get $1 million for um, the trauma and the pain as, as a compensation for the death. Are you whole? You have justice. You have the $1 million you know, uh, compensation. Are you whole? No. What the resurrection, what the Bible and the doctrine of glorification is saying is that you will be made whole because you will get back the life that you lost. Not just that it will be restored back to its original state, but it will be more beautiful, greater, more glorious. You're not just going to be Gandalf the Grey, you'll be Gandalf the White. And so that everything in this life that is good and beautiful will be pulled into the new life, into the next life to come, the resurrected glorification to come. And everything evil and unjust and wicked will be destroyed and dealt with so that... So that um, Everything sad will come untrue. And if you understand the Christian doctrine, I was talking to somebody who is not a Christian, and I was explaining to them um, the Christian uh, view of the future, the hope of the future. And he said to me, he said, he said, that sounds really good. He said, um, he said that sounds really good. And uh, it, it's, it, it, it's, it sounds like the best possible thing that you could hope for. Right? I remember this clearly. He says, it sounds like the best possible thing you could hope for, but I don't believe it. Right? He's not a Christian. And I think that's true. If you understand the doctrine of Christian glorification, you would want it to be true even if you don't believe it. Because there is no greater and better and more glorious thing to wish for, which is that everything sad will come true. Everything will be restored and renewed. And the second thing, the second point I want to make is that, therefore... Um, we do not enter into this glory at our death. Okay? There are two reasons for that. Why not our personal death? Because if it was our death that we entered into glory, then it would be an individualized thing. We would all enter into glory at separate times. Right? But this is where the Christian, this is where the Ordo Salutis doctrine of glorification connects with what's called the Historia Salutis, 
which is the redemptive history, which is creation, fall, redemption, glory. Um, it's a historical event. It's going to happen to all of us in a corporate sense. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if glory were entered into at our death, um, um, then we still have the problem of death. Uh, so let me go back to this, okay? This imagery. So the king returns back to the city, and the enemy that he has, right, the enemy that he has vanquished is Satan, sin, evil, and let me add death. Because remember we said bondage to decay, right? So let me read to you, uh, for, uh, uh, who can I have? Sarah, can you read 1 Corinthians 15? The last enemy, so it tells us the, our enemy is death. Our greatest, most terrible, fearsome foe is death. And at our glorification, King Jesus will stomp death. Will, will, the death of death will kill death. And therefore, at our death, we cannot enter into glory. Why not? Because we're dead. Even if our souls are redeemed, we have not yet entered into glory. And so here, I want to I describe this timeline because um, this will be very helpful to you. And perhaps this will be new to some of you. All right, I'm going to need to copy what I wrote. All right, so this is the timeline, right? So this is our present suffering. This is when we die. Okay. And then this is when we enter into glory. Remember, we do not enter into glory at our death. Okay? And then at glory, what happens? New creation. The whole world is renewed, resurrected world. Um, we gain back our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. So what's in between death and glory? Heaven. Okay. And in the Bible, uh, I, mean, I mean, theologians have described it, this period, as something really inelegant. The most inelegant term you can possibly describe, which is called the intermediate state. Not purgatory. <laughs> All right, so why is it the intermediate state? Remember the thief on the cross. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross when he expressed faith in him? When he says, remember me when you come into your glory. What, what did the thief say? You'll be with me today in paradise, right? So you're not going to experience some sort of like unconscious awaiting for glory. You're going to be with Jesus eternally happy, right? I mean, uh, in paradise. However, however, if you go to Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> there's a very interesting passage where it says that the, the saints, the, um, the martyred Christians, are crying out, how long, O Lord? Until you, until you deal justice in the world. How long, O oh Lord, until um, you will reign? So there's a sense in which we're in heaven, right? We are in heaven. We're with Jesus. Our body is in the ground in decay, but we're waiting. And so this is why it's called the intermediate state. Because it's the time in between this present suffering and 
new creation. Um, and it has to necessarily be because, again, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? So death, death, death reigns on earth, right? And here, death is defeated. There is no more death. Does that make sense? That's why this is called the intermediate state. Um, let me pause here. Right? Are there any questions here or clarification questions here? Oh, no. How could that be? <laughs> any questions here? Clarification question or any question? Clarification question. <laughs> what about the, the verse that talks about our souls will rise to meet Christ in the air? That's the next passage, First Thessalonians 4. So you, we're already in heaven? Uh, we'll get to that when we get to First Thessalonians 4. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yes, Sarah? So the creed that we sometimes say for First Communion is uh, that he descended into hell for a few days. So is he saying that we're – I don't know. I don't think it says uh, – What does it say? It says um, he descended into hell. He descended into hell. Yeah. And so if he's saying to the person on the cross – Okay, so so I'll explain to you. I do I do not believe that uh, the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell for three days. Okay, I, I'll have yeah. to look at it. But what it is is that the death is a descent into hell. So it's not a, a descent into a physical hell. There is going to be a physical hell, right? Um, it's talking about the experience of hell. When Jesus cried out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by the Father. He experienced um, the agony of punishment and the wrath of God. He drank the cup of wrath. So that's what it means to descend. <laughs> into, I think we interpret the descending as a physical yeah, descending, yeah. but it's an emotional, spiritual descending. And then Jesus was in the intermediate state himself okay. for three days because he was awaiting his own glory, okay. the glory of his redemptive body. So Jesus is described as the first fruits. He's the only one right now who, who has come into that full glory of resurrected body. But actually, even he is waiting for this, for all of creation to wake up. Right? We'll get to that. Uh, for the sake of time, let me press forward. So here's the controversy. When will we enter into, the go- into that glory? When King Jesus returns? We're going to read First Thessalonians 4. I will read it to you for the sake of time. Um, this is uh, uh, what I'm about to say or present to you is hotly contested by Christians. And therefore, if you find yourself discomforted by what I have to say, um, please know that it is a disputable matter. Um, you should not feel discouraged. Oh, Pastor Michael believes something different than I believe. Many Christians, you know, we disagree on this issue, but I think we can be charitable and kind to each other. And so basically, do not be traumatized is what I'm trying to say. All right, First Thessalonians 4. I'm going to go through it. Oh, dear. Okay. I feel, I feel frightened. All right. Um, Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who do not have hope. Who are these people who are asleep? Well, I mean, what, is that, what is that describing? What is that talking about? Death. Why? Why is sleep? Why is death described as sleep by Paul? Temporary. Huh? Temporary. Temporary, and you wake up. Yes. Well, first of all, a person who, who's, who's sleeping looks like they're dead to some degree, right? So there's, the, there's, the, there's a facsimile appearance, right? But the more important thing is that at the end of sleep is 
awake. You, you awake in the morning. So what Paul is saying is that everyone who is, who is dead, they're just asleep. Um, Judah, Judah, Judah understands the concept of death. And I always describe it to him as this. Death is like sleep. And one day we're going to wake up. Jesus will be there, right? Um, so, uh, so verse 14, But since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, so that's John's question, right? It says Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Who are these who have fallen asleep? It's everyone who's in the intermediate state. Everyone who is dead, who is in heaven, but do not yet have their resurrected bodies. He's going to bring with him those people. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, who are these people who are alive? Christians at the time of when Jesus arrives. So there are two categories of people. Those who are asleep, right, in, the, in heaven, and then those who are alive at the, at, the, at the coming of the Lord. And the word coming of the Lord is a very important concept and word in the Bible. In the Greek, it's the word parousia. Has anyone heard of the word parousia? All right, parousia is a hugely significant word in the Bible. Um, it means, it doesn't just mean coming, it means this. It means triumphal entry. Um, when the king comes back to a city in glory, in triumph, that they had a specific word for I told you, this is such a huge concept. They all had specific terminology for it. This is the parousia. All right? So it's talking about Jesus' parousia. Um, will not precede those... Okay, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord... Right? So we're in the city... Um, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the preceding means that those who have fallen asleep and those who are still alive at the coming of the Lord, the, the parousia of the Lord, no one's gonna, no one's gonna come first. No one's gonna get in line first. We're all gonna be there together. Verse sixteen: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So that's very important. There's a trumpet, right? <laughs> What's, what's, what's a trumpet for? Yes. So the king, when he comes back in his parousia, in his triumphal entry, he would have people blowing the horn. And the horn is announcing his victory. Right? Because a silent army is a defeated army. Right? But he's blaring. Right? The army is blaring. And listen. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ are those who are asleep. Right? So they're going to rise. What does the rise mean? Resurrection. Right? Then we who are alive, this is the, pe- the Christians who are at the time when Jesus comes back in his triumphal entry, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. So it says that we are caught up together. So let me graphically describe. Uh. All right. So. This is earth. This is heaven. It says the Lord will descend. And it says that we who are still alive will be caught up. Okay? And the word caught up is the Latin word. It's translated into Latin, repere. Does that word look familiar to you? Yes, this is where we get the word rapture. Okay? And... What happens in the rapture when we're caught up with the Lord? 
what happens to us who are believers who are at the time of the Je- when Jesus is coming? What happens to believers? No. Huh? No. Yes. All right, all right. Think back to all the left behind. What happens in left behind? What happens to the believers? They disappear. Where do they go? They go to heaven, okay? They go to heaven, all right? So, so the king takes them up to heaven, right? So that they evacuate the earth. The earth is empty of believers, right? That's why planes are going to crash. That's why cars are going to veer into, because believers are gone, right? Have I understood and articulated the rapture doctrine correctly? I think I have. I think I understand it pretty well. Now, think about it in terms of this. When the king comes back to the city, the city sends out all of its citizens to cheer and and celebrate and welcome the king. What does the king do at this point? Which way does he move? Does he go, does he come halfway where all the citizens come out and he says, come with me? Right and ride, ride away from the city. Does he do this? No. What does he do? He continues the motion down into the city. Right. So the problem with the doctrine of the rapture, right, is it's saying that Jesus is evacuating all the believers and they're awaiting them the future glory, but. What the Bible says, what I'm trying to argue for you here, is that at the coming of the Lord is glory. And so he comes down all the way. He brings all the believers in heaven. There's the resurrected life. And, and that, is, that is it. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of arguments why this is the case. Um, number one, according to the doctrine of the rapture, after... After believers are evacuated up into heaven, what happens on earth? Destruction. It's called, huh? Tribulation, right? So what happens on earth? There's fighting, there's death, there's murder and mayhem. Is death defeated? No. Death goes on. So the doctrine of rapture basically says that at the coming of the Lord, um, at the appearance of the Lord, at the appearance of King Jesus, he hasn't really defeated death. Right? He's only solved the problem of suffering for believers for a temporary period until the tribulation time is over. The second problem, um, the second problem is that, yeah, in this imagery of the parousia, the king comes to dwell with his people. So, any questions on that? On, on, on on the when of glorification. So so here's the answer, right? When does glorification happen? Or what is glorification? Glorification happens at the second coming of Jesus. Okay? Um, it happens at the... It, it's the resurrection and cosmic renewal. This is all one and same event. The problem with the doctrine of the rapture is that it separates the second coming from these other things. 
Does that make sense? But what I'm trying to say is that the second coming is all part of the same event. It's a single, unitary event. King Jesus returned. We're caught up with him because that's the imagery of the parousia, the triumphal entry. King Jesus comes into the city. He comes down to earth. He reigns. We reign with him. The world is renewed and beautified. Everything is restored. We have a glorified, embodied existence. Any questions? Yes. So uh, my understanding of the rapture doctrine is based on uh, scripture from Revelation, which talked about the thousand-year reign. Yeah, millennium. So can you summarize that? argument or explain what where, what they're getting wrong with that? Yes. So, the basically, the, the, the rapture doctrine is necessitated. So, the only place where you see this the, 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 the rapture doctrine explicitly in Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 4. As I've already described, it's a, it's a very dubious way to dis, uh, interpret 1 Thessalonians 4, but it's necessitated by a, a, a presuppositional view called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a view that arose about 150 years ago that basically says the church in the New Testament and the Israel in the Old Testament are two separate entities, two separate bodies, and they have two separate destinies. And the Old Testament Israel has all of these prophecies of renewal. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. There will be this period of reign and prosperity. They connect it to the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years of peace and glory and and, and, and beauty of the king. And so what they say is that all of these prophecies will only come true if the New Testament church is evacuated from the earth. So all belie- that's why the rapture came about. All believers are taken up to heaven. Jesus will come in the second coming, remove all, all Gentile believers, and then the drama that is Old Testament prophecy will play itself out with Israel. There will be the thousand-year reign, the millennium, and so forth. That's why it's called, this view is called premillennial. Premillennialism, meaning before the thousand years, the, this, this, the second coming will happen. Um, the view that I'm trying to describe is after the millennium, also called post-millennium or all-millennium, which is basically the millennium is now. We are in the millennium. We are in Jesus' earthly reign right now. He's not fully reigning, but Satan is bound. The church is expanding. Does that answer your question? Cool. Any questions? Yes, uh, just some quick questions just to help you clarify things. Uh, so do not believers get resurrected bodies? Um, yes. Okay. They, they will get resurrected bodies. Uh, they will experience physical torment. Okay, and the soul. Okay, you always hear these people, and I, I, I don't know the word verbatim, but just, uh, you know, when a person dies, uh, the, the, the saying is basically uh, he'll be present with the Lord. I, I forgot what the beginning is. That's sort of like a misnomer in a sense of making people believe that they're in heaven. Is that, is no, they are in heaven. They're in heaven. They're with the Lord. Like when people say, you know, somebody has died, where but are they? The, I always the, like to say the they're bodies, with Jesus. But their bodies... Their bodies are waiting resurrection. Okay, waiting for resurrection. Yes. Okay, what about the soul? And they're with Jesus. They're in conscious joy and happiness with King Jesus. Okay. But they're waiting. And, with, and, and when we mean soul, what does that actually mean? Is, it, it's the part of you that isn't physical. The memories... Sure. Our memory, our, uh, you know, this... Your mind, your, your thoughts. Your mind, your thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Okay, just wanted to clarify. I wish, I wish I didn't run out of time, because the other two passages prove, prove my interpretation, in, in my belief, it hammers at home, but you will only have to take my word for it. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe. Let us pray. Be good, huh?
Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for this glorious hope that we have awaiting for us, which is the resurrection, the final resurrection, when the whole earth will be renewed and restored and beautified. We, we look for it. It gives us endurance and perseverance in this time. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody.